This is the day the Lord has made. Amen. The sermon for this 18th Sunday after Trinity is according to St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verses 34 to 46. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Okay, so in other words, <laughs> Jesus made those Sadducees eat their words about the resurrection. Now they decided the Pharisees wanted a shot. <laughs> they wanted their turn. They sent one of their big guns. Somebody who was so familiar with the law, they were an expert in the law, we call it a lawyer. A man who considered himself to be pretty skilled at interpreting God's law. So he decides to go up to Jesus and get right to the brass tacks. He asks him, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Like so many people, this expert wants to show he knows what is the one thing that God commands as being the most important. Not a real brain drain for Jesus, was it? He quotes from the second giving of the law, commonly known as Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. He follows up. He's not done. Something they weren't really expecting. He says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, this is not a real brain drain for Lutherans either. We call this the two tables of the law, don't we? The first table of the law is our relationship to who? God. To God. And our second table of the law is a relationship to who? Our neighbor. Right, you guys are all experts. Congratulations. So we know love God starts it off. There it is. He comes right out and says it. And how many times have we said, I want to love God. Oh, how dearly I love God. He is my father. Oh, how well-intentioned I feel toward him. Your actual mileage may vary. And similar things. Indeed, when he does according to our pleasure, we can say many such words. But when one misfortune and adversity defends, descends upon us, we no longer consider him to be our God or our Father. We ask really crazy questions, like, where was God when I got that flat tire out in the middle of Arizona? I never have gotten a flat tire. I don't think I've ever been to Arizona. But we ask these questions, or even if I might say, where was God when my son died? Where was God when my daughter died? Where was God when my grandmother got cancer? It even comes out in more sobering ways. We find out the answer to this question. We don't run away when things look like 
they're getting a little sinful and fallen. A true love toward God does not act this way, but trusts it by faith and says it with the mouth, Lord God, I am your creature. Do with me as you will. It is all the same to me, for I am yours that I know. And if I should be your, it should be your will that I should die at this hour or suffer some great misfortune, I should suffer it with all my heart. I shall never consider my life, honor, and goods, and whatever I have higher or greater than you which shall be well-pleasing to me all my life. Martin Luther said that I'm not cool enough to write stuff like that. Do you think Pharisees were saying that? You think that's what the point of this was? Because their relationship with Jesus points towards no. Of course, Jesus follows up by saying, before you start feeling a little too good about yourself, Before you get a little bit too high on your horse, take notice that like loving the Lord, you are also called to love your neighbor as yourself. So he quotes Deuteronomy 19.18. This was an important point Jesus brought up to the Pharisees. Like the Sadducees known for their denial of the resurrection, The Pharisees were known for being harshly legalistic when it came to God's law and their neighbor. They were so harsh, they would often be extremely cruel in their persecution of people who they deemed to be unfaithful to the law of God as they interpreted it. Irony of ironies. Jesus uses the same text to both answer their question as he does to convict them of something of more than mere theological ignorance. He is telling them that as equally important as knowing that you must love God first, you must also love your neighbor. It's a package deal, isn't it? Those neighbors can be tricky, though, can't they? They are so very numerous. Our neighbors are so very different. A whole bunch of them are even jerks. And some of them, well, they smell bad. And all these may be true, but there's also something else about those tricky, wacky, jerky, smelly folks. They are gods. They were made in his image. Yes, those neighbors of varying personality and personal hygiene traits live and breathe because God, who you claim to love, breathed life into them. His very own Holy Spirit put life into them. That's valuable indeed. The attack of the Pharisees, well, to put it mildly, it kind of failed. Their very spokesman, their heavy hitter, had been obliged to admit the truth of Christ's answer. Mark 12, 32 and 33. But now Christ turns to proposing a question which would impale his adversaries on the horns of the real dilemma they were facing. 
His question concerns the sonship of Christ. Remember that? Oh, I have a question for you now. Uh Uh-oh. It concerns the sonship of Christ as the Mashiach, the anointed one. From what family is he to spring? It is the most momentous subject of investigation before the world, not only at the time of Christ, but at all times. This statement, David is his line, (laughs) is easy enough. And for those theological heavyweights, it is almost as simple as a twitch of the nose as to answer that the Messiah would come from the house of David. That's biblical. That wasn't enough, though, was it? He wanted to see how well they were able to take this great commandment to the gospel end that the Messiah was to be an offspring of David as stated so often in the Old Testament that every Jew was accustomed to calling him in that matter. Remember, even the the lepers, what did they call him? Son of David, have mercy on us. You know what? Because that's easy. As a matter of fact, but the Pharisees had never compared the various passages concerning the Messiah. His person and his work were for the reason, well, they were sort of, they were ignorant of his mission. The fact of the twofold nature of Christ was plainly taught in the Old Testament. St. Paul says as much. But their eyes had been blinded by their false hopes, their false aspirations, sort of their own agenda. Jesus refers only to that fact that David, Psalm 110.1, calls him his Lord. If then David, he says, calls him Lord, how is he his son? We spent a while on that in seminary, just so you know. It sounds strange and is contrary to the nature that a father calls his son Lord, that he also becomes subject to him and serves him. Now David calls Christ his Lord and such a Lord to whom God himself says, sit thou at my right hand, etc. That is, be equal with me, known and adored as the very and true God. For on God's chair or his right hand, no other may sit. It's a Hebrew thing. When you sit at the right hand of somebody, it means you sit in their power and their authority. There is no distinction. He is so jealous that he will permit no one else to sit at his equal with him, as he says in the prophet Isaiah chapter 48, 11. Neither will I give my honor, he says. Since then, he places Christ on the level with him. The latter must be more than all creatures, says Luther. To be Lord on high, equal with God, yet to be the son of David according to the flesh, to have the divinity and the humanity confined in one person, that is the Messiah of prophecy. Not just some guy who will do tricks and heal people and make everything nice. And what will the learned Jews 
And what the learned Jews could not understand and explain, which made them speechless and utterly dumbfounded, is the great comfort of the believers of all time. That is appreciating the person of Christ and knowing whose son he is, namely a son of David, for he is man, and also the Lord of David, for he is sitting at the right hand of God, his father and his enemies, and sin, death, and hell become the footstool of his feet. What quiets some comforts others. You notice that. Therefore, he who is in need of salvation against the enemies of sin, death, devil, hell, let them not speak with Moses, not through the law, not through his own works and piety. Let him seek it with the Son and Lord of David. There they will surely find salvation. There they will surely find comfort. There they will surely find God. This the blind Pharisees did not know. Therefore, they did not respect the Lord Christ. They were satisfied with what they know out of the law, how one should love God and one's neighbor as more of a checklist. And yet it is impossible to know God, much less love God, unless one knows Christ. Remember when he said to them, you seek the scriptures, for in them you think you find life. But what you do not know is that they what? They speak of me, he says. You're looking for this through the scriptures and thinking you have life and you don't even see Jesus in there. Uh-oh. Matthew eleven twenty seven. No one knows the Father but the Son, and to whom the Son reveals it. But here we see the riches of this superabundant goodness and mercy of God, that God spared not His only begotten Son, but delivers Him unto death, even death on a cross for you, in order that we, freed, liberated from sins through Him, should live for eternity. This is an eternal, boundless, fathomless love and mercy, which no one can know unless they know Christ. No problem, right? But because of all of this, all of this wonderful promise that he gives us, points us, it gives us the reason we say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in Amen. Please rise. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and your minds in the one true faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. <laughs>